Hello and welcome to episode number 88 of The Draft Analyst, presented by the Believe Sports Podcast Network. Do you believe? This is Chris Tripodi, and I'm joined by Tony Pauline to break down what we saw during week four of the college football season and prep you for what to watch in this weekend's upcoming matchups. But first, I'd like to take just a slight detour from the college gridiron and take a quick look at the NFL. And Tony, I have two words for you. Daniel Jones. You know, it's amazing how quickly things can automatically change. And right, let's go back to last November, you know, uh, after that game against Clemson, when I said Daniel Jones had to enter the draft because he was just getting the crap beat out of him uh, while he was at Duke. Uh, when you look at that Clemson game, I mean, he was basically pulling himself off of the field and hobbling back into the huddle. So I thought he made the uh, correct choice by entering the draft. We go to the senior bowl and our senior bowl previews. I said that Daniel Jones had the greatest opportunity of any player to make a big move up draft boards. He looked like he was going to make that move after a great first day of practice. And it kind of cooled off a little bit. As I reported previously uh, at draft analysts, he had a great pro day and both the giants and Washington Redskins were enamored with him at pro day. Then comes draft day and the giants select him with the sixth pick of the draft. And as we know, living in New York, people went out of their minds. I mean, you literally, you literally had to talk people off the edge of the cliff. Uh, because they thought it was such a reach. And I said at the time, I said, listen, if you want to complain that he was taking a few selections too early, I could understand that. But don't complain about the player because Daniel Jones is a good player. And when we did our Duke preview, when I redid all the Duke film work during our ACC uh, uh, prospect preview over the summer, I basically doubled down on what I saw with Daniel Jones. I, I said, you know, I've, I've graded this guy as a, as a good quarterback prospect since he was a redshirt freshman. And when I went back and watched the Duke film, not even watching Daniel Jones, just the way he stood out, and I was even more impressed with him. And then we see what happens last weekend. He comes in to start for Eli Manning, has a terrific game, really played lights out, and really in, what, four or five short months? Now the giant fans that are basically were wa- walking out on the ledge are now on talk radio in New York saying that he's a better quarterback than uh, Sam Darnold uh, of the New York Jets, which I've heard a couple of times. Uh, you know, as, as much as I thought that the giant fans' uh, fury was out of control, uh, was out of sorts on draft day, I think their enthusiasm is a little bit over the edge at this point in time. Daniel Jones played great. He's got an excellent future. You know, you're preaching to the choir here with that one, but let's take a step back. He's only started one game. Teams will start to have more and more film on Daniel Jones in real live NFL action, so they'll be able to prepare for him better. I still think he's going to be a successful quarterback, but I think people ought to kind of, kind of, you know, take their foot off the throttle a little bit and give this guy a body of work before they're starting to make all these predictions about how special he is and everything. And you're talking to a Daniel Jones fan. You know, I've liked Daniel Jones, uh, like I said, since he was a redshirt freshman. Yeah, and I certainly wasn't as high on Jones as you were, but compared to some of the people who were calling him like a fourth or a fifth round prospect throughout the draft process, I mean, I can understand maybe if you have your grading scale and you don't value quarterbacks on that grading scale, like, NFL teams will in terms of the draft like oh you know this guy's a second round pick but he's going to go in the first round that kind of thing sure whatever and like you said you can understand the fact that they didn't want him at number six they wanted him to fall to number 17 but when I talked to all my giant fan friends and family after the draft all I told them was you know what he's probably a little bit of bad value at six but in the end you want 
your general manager to have conviction. You want your front office to have that conviction in the player that says, you know what? We don't want to risk him falling to pick 17. We're just going to take him right here. Yeah, maybe the value isn't great, but he's our guy. We believe in him. And in the end, it's looking so far like that was the right move. Now, we'll see what happens moving forward. You mentioned that teams are going to get film on him. Obviously, they're going to run a bit more of a complex game plan. If teams get more film on them, they really kind of dumb the offense down a little bit. One, two read plays, and then, hey, Daniel, go run if those reads aren't there. And, hey, he did a great job of it. He lost Saquon Barkley during the game and still managed to bring them back in Tampa against an aggressive Todd Bowles defense. I mean, it was thoroughly impressive what he did. But as you said, it's time to pump the brakes just a little bit. But then again, we're in New York where everything is either the world is exploding or everything is peaches and cream. So there's no real in-between there, but there really should be if we're going to look at Daniel Jones objectively moving forward. I think what happened is, is, you know, people looked at the cover rather than reading the book with Daniel Jones. You know, they tried to match him up against all the hype of, of Kyler Murray and some of the other quarterbacks. I think that, as I said all along, Drew Locke was ridiculously overrated, uh, and we saw where he ultimately fell. I also think Dave Gettleman, immediately after the draft, hurt the situation by making statements that he knew the Denver Broncos were going to take Daniel Jones, or he knew the Washington Redskins with, 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 what, the 10th pick of the draft, and he knew the Redskins were going to take with the 15th pick of the draft. I don't think that helped the situation at all. But listen, as I've said all along, Jones is the perfect fit for the New York Giants. He is a very reserved personality who is a tall, strong-armed, accurate pocket passer who makes as many plays with his head as he does with his physical skills. He's more mobile than any quarterback the Giants have had in a real long time. He's got great upside. And again, you know, I, I think that what we were hearing from basically from people who follow the draft two or three months out of the year who never watched Daniel Jones, other except for maybe some highlights and never took into the fact that playing at Duke, I mean, there was no draftable talent around him. So good for the giants. Good for Daniel Jones. Good for my buddy, buddies at NewYorkGiants.com, Paul Dottino and John Schmelke, who took a lot of abuse uh, the night of the draft when they were, you know, defending the pick of Daniel Jones and they had me on. And I think there was a sigh of relief from them when I said, yeah, listen, I, I like the player. Uh, and, you know, we'll have to wait and see what he happens from here. But all signs are, are pointing towards positive things for him. And, and good for us and particularly you here, because this is the second straight season that there has been a polarizing first round draft pick that people looked at his production on the field and the statistics and things like that and just decided, you know what, this guy isn't worth our time. Obviously, I'm talking about Josh Allen the year before Daniel Jones. These are two guys here. Josh Allen has shown some steps and taken some strides in Buffalo this season. So he's looking like a potential cornerstone. And again, at Wyoming, what did he have around him in terms of supporting cast? Sure, he was playing in an even lesser conference than Daniel Jones was, but at the same time, he looked bad at times in college. But you look at what's around him and you take the whole picture with all the context in it. And both of these guys are really helping that argument in terms of what you were saying. And if they ever get some real receivers for uh, Josh Allen at Buffalo, watch out. He could be lethal because when I saw him that opening game, I, I saw a lot of receivers that just really were not impressive at all. Well, let's not hate too much on John Brown, but we've said enough already about the NFL here. Let's move back to the college level, but we will stick with the quarterback position and we're going to head to LSU. Now that's just 
I've never thought I would say something like that. Quarterbacks, LSU, talking about draft prospects. But here we are at a program not really known for quarterback play. Joe Burrow seems to be changing that. Struggled last year by almost all accounts, especially in the red zone and key situations. He was a UDFA on our preseason board. He doesn't look like a UDFA anymore. He is right now a totally different quarterback. 25 for 34, 398 yards and six touchdowns without a turnover against Vandy this past weekend. Already has more touchdown passes this year than he did in 2018, completing 80% of his passes on the season. And that number matches his on-field performance as well. I mean, he's had some pristine ball placement. He leads receivers into yards after catch. He puts the ball where only they can get it. He's shown much improved pocket awareness and maneuverability within the pocket. Tony, who is this guy and what has he done with 2018 Joe Burrow? Well, I mean, what he's doing is he's staying away from uh, making poor mistakes. I mean, 1,500 passing yards as far as the season, 17 touchdowns, only two interceptions. He's making plays with his head. He's a relatively athletic guy. Now, you know, in the early part of the uh, season, the schedule has been in his favor because he hasn't played any overwhelming defenses. It's going gonna, it's gonna to stay like that really for the next game where they play Utah State, where the all eyes will be on quarterback Jordan Love. But then it gets a little bit tougher. Florida, that's got a good defensive line and some good players in their secondary. Mississippi State, that's got a good defensive line and some players in their secondary. Auburn, that's got two terrific corners. And then the big game on November 9th, which I think will not only impact the national rankings, but could be a statement game for Burrow when they play Alabama and their defense, which is always strong. So, But again, he's checking off all the boxes. He's doing the right things. He's showing a lot of improvement in his game and really going from becoming a athletic thrower to a passer. Um, and good for him. Good for him. I mean, he came in, like you said, we gave him free agent grades. The highest grade I saw from, or I heard from any scout coming into the season was a sixth round grade. So scouts thought that he was a late rounder, but you know what? Six, three, 213 pounds. He's got an NFL arm. He's got the mobility to make plays in or out of the pocket. And it, he's pulling all the pieces together. Now, if we look on the other side of this game, we had Riley Neal graded as draftable, Joe Burrow as a free agent. In hindsight, maybe that doesn't look super great, but at the same time, that was based on what we had seen from these players in the past, Riley Neal coming over from Ball State, and you want to talk about next week's matchup between Jordan Love and Joe Burrow. Well, this week's was supposed to be a decent quarterback matchup too, but in the end, Riley Neal just didn't do anything against this LSU defense, 15 for 31, 206 yards, one touchdown, one interception. After a first drive touchdown, really was just very inconsistent with his accuracy. His deep balls were fluttering. He was unable to make big plays, didn't really stand strong in the pocket, was seeing ghosts at times and just leaving the pocket a bit too soon. And now, so far for Neil, that's two bad games against strong SEC opponents this season. It was another nondescript game as well for tight end Jared Pinckney. Really no sense of urgency in his game in terms of attacking the ball in the air and so far a lackluster start to his season. Two guys who did all right on the Vandy offense were wide receiver Kalijah Lipscomb and running back Keyshawn Vaughn. Lipscomb won some battles early against Derek Stingley Jr., ran some nice routes. He was elusive after the catch. Struggled late, though, only had one catch in the second half as that Vanderbilt offense really just didn't move the ball. I did like what I saw from Vaughn, though. 20 carries for 130 yards and two touchdowns. Broke some tackles, showed breakaway speed on his long touchdown. So while him and Lipscomb were bright spots, the rest of Vandy's offense, unfortunately, just continues to be uninspiring here. And, you know, it wasn't just us. I mean, Neil was given a six-round grade by uh, scouts coming in. Neil was given a higher grade than Joe Burrow. 
uh, by scouts coming into the season. So we weren't the only ones that missed. You know, you, you kind of you kind of said it in a, in a nutshell there. The only guy on the Vanderbilt offense, which was supposed to be a high-powered offense this year, a dangerous offense, the only guy that's come through is Keyshawn Vaughn. Uh, 52 carries this year for 260 yards, averaging five yards per carry with three TDs. I, I mean, even though Lipscomb had a decent game against LSU, he's not been good this year. Three games, 16 receptions, averaging uh, under 11 yards per catch, one TD. Pinckney has basically disappeared, and Pinckney was given a mid-first-round grade by some scouts. Uh, you know, part of it's Neil, but and and the rapport that Neil's got to come together or, or develop with these players – that shouldn't take too long. Just something seems to be amiss, and I don't think it's just the quarterback. Uh, these guys have not really stepped it up. Last year, you know, they had a, a good rapport with Kyle Shermer. Uh, you know, it'll be interesting as we go through the season if this continues, not only to find out where these guys fall, but to hear from scouts as we go through the season what they think the problem is. And I'll touch on one more portion of this game before we move on, and that's the defense of LSU that did this and you know made Vandy continue to look sort of inept as an offense, despite the fact that they scored 38 points. It really was not that kind of offensive performance. Obviously, safety Grant Delpit gets most of the defensive headlines at LSU. We know he's a stud. He did an excellent job on Pinckney in this game. But linebacker Jacob Phillips, man, he had a massive game. Ten tackles, three for loss. Everything was on display. His read and react ability, his closing burst. He made all the plays once he was there. He was just really all over the field. Preseason, he was rated as a third rounder for us. Is this what you expected from Phillips, Tony? I think yes, because I expected a degree of development in his game. And he is a Devin White type of linebacker. You know, slightly undersized, but fast, explosive, covers a lot of area on the field. Great in pursuit. Shows a lot of suddenness in his game. You know, if you watched the film last year, everybody was focusing on Devin White, as they well should have. But every once in a while, you would see Jacob Phillips come out of nowhere to make big plays on the ball carriage. Just great uh, speed in every direction of the field. So now with Devin White gone, more of the responsibilities are going to fall on Phillips' uh, shoulders. And like you said, coming into the season, I had him graded as a third rounder. I think there's no doubt that he's definitely moved into the top 75 picks. Probably right now you could uh, safely say he's, you know, a potential top 60 selection. What do you think his draft ceiling is if he could climb even higher than that? Depends on what his true height weight is. You know, I got him at 6'3", 224 pounds, and his 40 time, I got him at 4'6", Obviously, you know, as we've seen uh, with guys like Devin White, uh, uh, other linebackers, Roquan Smith, the height weight is not all that important. They're, they are they are open to taking smaller linebackers as they are open to taking smaller quarterbacks. 40 time is going to be very important. Do I think that it's a possibility that if he keeps playing the way he is at the clip he's playing and he continues to improve, he could end up in, in the first round, in the bottom, part, bottom third of the first round? I don't think that's out of the question at all. Now we'll move on here to the Pac-12 where Utah traveled to USC for the Utes conference opener. They lost 30 to 23, which in the end might be a job saving win for Clay Helton, at least for now. Clay Helton has his wide receivers to thank for this game. Michael Pittman in particular went off 10 catches, 232 yards and a touchdown. Tyler Vaughn's was a bit quieter with four catches for 49 yards and one touchdown. He was the one as expected who got the matchup against Jalen Johnson. 
Vaughn's got consistently behind him early, not as much late, kind of similar to what Lipscomb did against LSU. But with Johnson on Vaughn's and Julian Blackman, a guy we like at both corner and safety, playing on the back end at safety, this left Pittman with the better matchup of the two. And he took significant advantage of that, a guy who uses his size to separate rather than speed, but has enough just to get downfield and put his ball tracking and high pointing ability into play on deeper throws. That has always been there for Pittman. He's also tough to bring down post-catch, which you saw in this game too. So a big game for him. But Tony, what are your takeaways on these two? Well, they're basically what you said, but I did speak to a number of people who were at the game. There were 20 teams at this game. So it kind of kind of tells you the amount of talent that was on the field, although none of it was early round talent. Everyone came away impressed with Pittman. As I was told, you know, he was a man amongst boys. He was an absolute beast that couldn't be stopped. What I heard from a positive point of view is scouts think he's a lot faster than what they estimated early on. They estimated him to be a guy who's going to run the four sixes. We're hearing now low four fives. You know, we'll have to wait and see. Look good on film. Look good against a talented secondary, which in Julian Blackman and Jalen Johnson looked awful. They definitely took a hit. But, you know, the thing I'll go back to what I say with, Pitt, with Pittman. My concerns with him is his ability to separate. Now, he did so well in this game, and he was unstoppable. Want to see if he goes to the senior bowl, which I'm sure he's going to if he remains healthy, how he does as far as his route running, his route running at the combine, because that will dictate, you know, where he's going to end up. Some scouts have him as, as a mid-third round choice. Some scouts have him as a fourth round choice. I had him more as a fifth rounder because I'm concerned about that, uh, that speed and that ability to separate. But, more, but you know what? Thus far, he's proven me wrong. And thus far, he's proven himself to be the big-time receiver and the potential second-day pick that a lot of scouts think he, he's capable of being. Now, flipping this over to the Utah side of things, unfortunately, Zach Moss left the game early, rushed for 20 yards on six carries, but nothing significant of consequence there for Moss. But on Utah's defensive line, there are two interesting prospects, defensive end Bradley and I and defensive tackle Lecky Fotu. Both are guys who are quick off the snap, and I really loves to time it. Got actually caught for an offsides at one point in this game. Has good speed and bend off the edge. Five tackles, two of them for loss with a sack. Couple plays, though, where I wish he really would have finished the job. That, though, is not an issue with Fotu. Showed off a nice swim move, has the power to push Lyman off the ball. He was really impressive and disruptive in this game. It's not an issue for Fotu when he decides to play. And that was the overwhelming theme. When he wants to put the pedal to the metal and when he's focused on the task at hand, he's a guy that can dominate uh, the line of scrimmage. He can control the line of scrimmage, make a lot of plays in the backfield, and really uh, is very impressive when he wants to play. Six, five and a half, in excess of 330 pounds, a real good athlete who moves well. The problem is consistency for Fotu. He's not always playing hard. He's not always putting the pedal to the metal, and that is a concern. Now, if he plays every game the way he played against USC, he's going to shoot up draft boards and end up as a uh, second-day pick. If he doesn't, you know, what's going to happen is scouts are going to question him about it at senior bowl interviews or combine interviews, and he could fall into the third day of the draft. I mean, he was a guy coming into the season. I gave him a fifth-round grade. There were some scouts who thought he was a six-rounder. He has second-day ability. He doesn't always play to it. Uh, Anai is, is an athletic guy, good, uh, edge rusher, as you said, he's got to, got to add some bulk to his uh, frame, got to get a little bit stronger, but you know, if you're looking for a, a four, three edge rusher, Anai is a guy that you're going to take in the, in the later rounds. 
One guy that I heard a lot of positive things about when I asked after watching him on film was the Utah offensive tackle, Darren Polo. Uh, he's a guy who was graded by some scouts as a seventh rounder. I gave him a six round grade coming into the season, played right tackle last year, has moved to the left side. Scouts like the way he's playing left tackle. He's a guy that scouts feel has already improved at least two rounds and will stay in that middle round area if he continues to play the way he's playing rather than be the late round pick that a lot had projected him to be before the season began. Yeah, I will say he was pretty impressive when um, I was trying to specifically watch him during this game. He gets good push as a run blocker, showed the ability to get to the second level a little bit. I felt he was a bit better protecting the edge than the B gap inside. He was beaten inside by whether it was a quick move off the snap by someone like Anai or some rip moves. Didn't really slide out in front of rushers to recover once he was beaten. But overall, I was impressed with him. And I think he is a guy that probably could get some early day three recognition, like you were saying. Just as long as he continues to play the way he's playing and he shows some athleticism at the combine because uh, that is one concern about him is how athletic is he, although he's played very well thus far. Now, our final review takes us to another undefeated team losing a bit different stakes than Utah, though, and that's UCF losing at Pitt, the first regular season loss for the Knights since 2016, and it needed a fourth down trick play from the three-yard line in the final minute to get it done. People are calling it the Pitt special because it was a reverse pass back to the quarterback, kind of like the Philly special in the Super Bowl. But in the end, another big day for UCF wide receiver Gabe Davis. Ten catches, 151 yards, and two touchdowns after he got the best of Stanford's Paulson Adebo the week before. Bit of a slow start in the first half, only had three catches for 16 yards, but really got going late when UCF was in comeback mode. Didn't see much of Dane Jackson covering him early, which was a bit disappointing. That was the matchup we were looking forward to. But Pitt lost a couple corners during the game. So eventually they had no choice but to move Dane Jackson on Davis. Couldn't really draw any conclusions from the limited snaps they faced off against each other, except maybe the fact that Jackson didn't get beat downfield, which is something we were watching for heading into the game. Maybe Pitt kept him away from Davis, knowing that the matchup wasn't quite as favorable, even though he was their best corner. But in the end, Davis really was the UCF offense Saturday afternoon, even if there were times when he struggled with press coverage and just had a few missed opportunities, not getting his foot in bounds or dropping a ball when he high pointed it. There were a few issues, but overall, another very good game for Davis. I thought the pick corners, Jason Pinnock and, and, and Dane Jackson, did, did a good job on Davis in the first half, and then he just went crazy in the second half. I thought overall Dane Jackson had a good game. Uh, he's a guy that some scouts think uh, is worthy of a fourth-round grade. I have him more as a uh, fifth-rounder. I'm concerned about his speed, especially his deep speed. But he's got a good feel for coverage. I think he's a guy who can line up at dime back at the next level, play special teams, has nickel cornerback size, that's for sure. Uh, I thought overall he didn't embarrass himself. It's just that Gabe Davis continues to impress and improve. And, again, you know, here's a guy when we did our first preview, as I mentioned, he was my number one next-level prospect from the American Athletic Conference. I had him graded as a second-rounder. I, I, I'm not going to go out on a limb and say he's a first-rounder yet. I want to see how fast he runs the 40 in. But he is an outstanding receiver on the college level and a great prospect for the NFL. Now, on the other side of the ball in this game, we had a couple other receivers nowhere near as highly regarded as Gabe Davis, and that's Taysier Mack and Maurice French. Both guys were effective underneath receivers, which is kind of their MO. They're not big play guys, especially French, who's more of like a gadget type of player, but they're guys who are going to be reliable in the short and intermediate field. Now, Richie Grant 
is a safety on UCF who we discussed in that AAC preview, really flies around the field. His nine tackles in this game led the team. And these weren't your drag down tackles either. These were stop you in your tracks type of hits. And he doesn't miss often, even when he's going for the big hit. Unlike teammate Antoine Collier at safety, who actually might have missed more tackles in this game than he made. But this is a very good secondary for the Knights. Brandon Moore, guy who had a third round grade on our board. Unfortunately, he's done for the year with a torn ACL. But Neville Clark remains as the other corner there. Solid game against both the run and the pass. And this secondary against pit receivers was kind of the secondary and ancillary matchup to watch in this game. What did you see from it, Tony? Yeah, I thought the pit receivers played very well. I mean, uh, Maurice French is a priority free agent. He's a guy that's got adequate size, good speed. He's more of a fifth receiver return specialist. I thought that he played very well. Same thing with Tazir Mack. I have Tazir Mack as a six-rounder right now. Uh, coming into the season, I should say, ex- good, decent size, 6'1", 188 pounds, more of your typical receiver that's come out of pit with the average size, not the great speed, but good hands, good route runner. I thought overall that the, uh, the Panther receivers did a good job against what is, as you mentioned, a very talented uh, UCF secondary. Now, I'll bring you several week five previews in just a minute. But before we do, please support the draft analysts by subscribing on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or any of the big podcast platforms. You can also find us at Believe.com. Leave us a rating and a review. If you have any questions you want answered on the show, tweet us at Chris Tripodi, at Tony Pauline, and at Believe Podcast to get in touch with the show. Now, we've discussed Northwestern linebackers Patty Fisher and Blake Gallagher several times over the past couple of months. Now they get to face off against the Wisconsin running game led by an always dominant offensive line and running back Jonathan Taylor, who really has everything you want as a runner specifically, patience, vision, balance, strength. He shows the ability to set up defenders, several moves in advance, and he's so smooth as a runner that he doesn't look fast. But when he turns on the Jets, you can see the speed. You saw that on his long touchdown run against Michigan last weekend where he just blew the safety out of the water and took it to the house very easily. No chance he was going to get caught from behind. If you look at the offensive line, Tyler Biedaz is a first-round center on our board. A lot of people thought he was going to declare for the draft last year, and he didn't, so he'll be a priority pick this year. He's going to see a lot of Fisher and Gallagher at the second level. Tight end Jake Ferguson is going to, too. Last episode, we mentioned that Fisher looked good in coverage against UNLV. Obviously, this is a much tougher test against this running game and Jake Ferguson for both Fisher and Gallagher. A lot of people in the Midwest, a lot of scouts in the Midwest, really starting to come away more and more impressed with Patty Fisher. This is a huge test for, for both Fisher and Gallagher, as you mentioned. You know, Jonathan Taylor, not only the speed, I mean, he's got great straight line speed. I still kind of question his ability to turn the perimeter. Uh, but, but without a doubt, he's, uh, he, you know, he is a guy who's showing himself to be a potential feature runner for the next level. But the strength in his running. I mean, can Ken Gallagher, Ken Betty Fisher, are they going to be able to square into this guy and bring him down at the line of scrimmage, uh, bring him down in the open field, which he often gets into the open field so much because that uh, that, that that Wisconsin line just opens so many holes. Jake Ferguson has had a bit of a dis- disappointing year from a statistical po- uh, point of view catching the ball. I think part of that is because of the return of Quentin Cephas, 
the big play receiver from Wisconsin returning to the field. But still, I, I mean, you talked about how Patty Fisher did make a good play a couple of weeks ago in coverage. He's going to be tested here. He's going to have to, you know, show some discipline, not to buy them the play action pass and come up the field too quickly to try and take on Taylor and remain disciplined or Ferguson will just come across the middle of the field, uh, drag across on a crossing pattern uh, into the open spot, uh, you know, to make the reception. I, I think that Wisconsin, uh, I should say, I think that Northwestern's really overmatched in this game. But still, for Patty Fisher and Gallagher, who I like a lot, he's a terrific football player. I just don't think he's got the great uh, size speed numbers for the next level. But he's a real good pursuit linebacker who hustles, who's got real good instincts. This is a huge matchup for these guys, not only against Taylor, but as you mentioned with uh, Jake Ferguson and in the passing game. Now we'll move from the Big Ten here to the SEC as Clemson travels to North Carolina. Now the Heels just lost to Appalachian State at home, their second straight loss. So this game is not intriguing from the sense of is it going to be close or is it going to be a good game in the fourth quarter because it's most likely not going to be. Let's just be honest. But there is a matchup to watch when UNC is on defense, and that's safety Miles Dorn against Clemson's wide receivers. T. Higgins, Justin Ross, those guys get most of the attention. Ross is not yet draft eligible, but we'll be talking about him a lot next year. But a guy like Amari Rogers is also interesting. Ross is probably the best of the trio, but Higgins is a guy who gets downfield, can make big plays despite not being a true burner. Rogers is more of the underneath slot type of guy. What's going to be interesting about this game is how Mac Brown utilizes Dorn to try to neutralize these receivers. He's not going to stop them. He's probably going to struggle to slow them down as a whole, but I'm just intrigued to see his usage of Dorn and where he places them and what he values in terms of what Dorn can do against these guys, especially with players like KJ Sales gone from the program, transferring, and Patrice Rene out with a torn ACL in that secondary. Miles Dorn is a player who I noticed as a uh, redshirt freshman. Uh, the way he stood out to me on film. And as a redshirt sophomore, when I was doing a mock draft after the, uh, it must have been after the 2000, uh, 2017 draft, maybe 2016 draft, I got to look back. I actually had him graded as a potential first rounder. The problem with Miles Dorn is I found out last year at the Shrine game from talking to North Carolina people is he can be a great player when he wants to be, but he doesn't always want to be. It's like Fochu of, of Utah. He turns it on and he turns it off. You, you watch the North Carolina film, and you'll see number one flash out of nowhere, make big plays. He's got the athleticism. He's got the speed in both the straight line as well as laterally. He's not just a downhill safety. Uh, he, he will knock your head off. But the problem is, is his instincts are suspect and his intensity is suspect, especially the latter. Although Coach Brown has seemed to kind of kick him in the rear end and, and uh, get him to play at a higher level more consistently. And, and this is reflective in the grades. I mean, I gave him a second-round grade. There are some scouts that gave him a second-round grade. There are other scouts who think he, he's a fourth-rounder because of that inconsistency in his play. And he better not be inconsistent against Clemson because Amari Rogers and T. Higgins will take him to town. They will destroy him. I mean, Rogers is the smaller, faster guy. I think Dorn can stay with Rogers, but he's just got to make sure he keeps his head on a swivel uh, because Rogers is so quick. Higgins is the bigger guy, but still, I, I mean, Miles Dorn's got better size, and he will take it to T. Higgins when he wants to. If you watch this game, if you watch North Carolina, the one thing you got to look at is the consistency of Miles Dorn. Is he getting caught out of position? Is he slow to react? Is he just basically taking plays off? Because if he doesn't do those things and he plays up to his ability, he definitely has top 45 potential. It's just a question of where's the intensity on a down-in, down-out basis for Miles Dorn. And it's going to be interesting because with a guy like that who you want to – 
have that switch in the on position the whole time. Is he going to be extra focused because he's playing against guys who are going to be future NFL players because he's playing against a stack loaded offense and he wants to prove himself? Or is he going to say, you know what, we really don't have any chance either. I don't feel like playing on this player. I'm going to take this one off or, you know, whatever it may be, which way is the pendulum going to swing for Miles Dorn? And I think the answer to that question is going to determine a lot about his status moving forward. Well, or even worse, you know, does he play hard in the beginning of the game? And then as uh, North Carolina falls further and further behind, as most people expect, does he uh, all of a sudden take downs off? Absolutely. And we're going to head down now to the Sun Belt Conference, which is not usually a hotbed of NFL talent. But there is an interesting matchup this week between Louisiana wide receiver Jamarcus Bradley and the Georgia Southern cornerbacks, Kendall Vildor and Monquavian Brinson. Bradley's off to a hot start. This season, 20 catches for 330 yards and three touchdowns. He had 40 receptions for 640 yards and 10 scores in 2018. So he's just continuing to build off that success. They played Mississippi State in week one, face off against cornerback Cam Dantzler, who's a mid-round pick on our board, had six catches for 93 yards, really held his own there. Six foot one, 195 pounds, fifth round grade for us compared to Brinson and Vildor, who were rated a round or two later. They have similar size to each other. Both are giving up two inches to Bradley. So it's going to be interesting to see who ends up getting the assignment of Bradley if they split time against him. Tony, what are you expecting to see in this matchup? Yeah, I don't think there's going to be a one-on-one matchup. I think they'll just play a field corner and the other guy will play the other side. I mean, Bradley's a very good pass catcher. He's got decent size, six foot, 205 pounds. He's not the fastest guy in the world, but he runs good routes. He's got soft hands. He's fundamentally sound. He's a guy that, you know, I have him as a fifth rounder. Most scouts have him as a fifth rounder. And scouts like the uh, secondary at Georgia Southern. You mentioned Bill Dorr. You mentioned Brinson. Brinson's a guy I've, I've had rated for the past three years. There's also another player there by the name of uh, Jesse Liptrot, who is a priority free agent uh, rated by scouts. So I, I think the three of them, you know, will focus on Bradley. Vildor is the guy that we could see at the senior bowl. He's a guy 5'10", 185 pounds, runs in the four and the low four fives, solid cover man, tough physical, really gives it up against the run, uh, decent ball skills. Brinson is a little bit limited with his back to the ball. He's better facing the action in his own type system. But again, you know, you don't regularly see these sorts of matchups in the Sun Belt, but this is a good one uh, if you're able to watch the game. Absolutely. And We'll move for our final preview here from a small conference in the Sun Belt to the biggest conference into the SEC where Kentucky visits South Carolina. Wildcats guard Logan Stenberg has the challenge in this game of slowing down Gamecocks defensive tackle Javon Kinlaw. Kinlaw already four sacks this season after four and a half last year. His hip injury that he struggled with at times in 2018 is now in the rearview mirror. And Kinlaw is six foot six, 310 pounds, really good athlete at that size, adds power as well, really looking to crash the first round party, was a second rounder on our preseason board, but he's definitely moving up after his performance so far this season, whereas Stenberg is more of a mid-round guy, really a phone booth type of blocker, not somebody you want to put in space, but it'll be interesting to watch whether he can handle A, the athleticism of Kinlaw, and B, whether he can match the power that Kinlaw is going to come at him with in this matchup. Well, I don't think the power uh, of Sternberg is going to be a, a question or be a concern because I think he is as powerful. And once he gets his hands on Kinlaw, 
game over for Stenberg. I, I think that he will win out probably nine times out of 10. The question is, is when they go head to head, if Kinlaw gets the first step on him, if Kinlaw tries to do a stunt or a twist around him, you know, Ken Stenberg adjust? Can he redirect? Because as you said, he's more of a phone booth, small area type player. He's great in that aspect. And he is a nasty blocker. He works to finish off opponents every down. And usually when you see a Kentucky blocker on top of a, a on top of an opponent, it's Stenberg finishing off the block. There's no doubt about it. But as you said, Kinlaw, who was highly rated by scouts. I mean, Kinlaw was a top three defensive lineman from scouts coming into the year. He lost a lot of weight. He, he was incredibly athletic when he was uh, 330 pounds. He's down in the low 300s right now. He's even more athletic. Uh, he's playing relatively well this year. But again, you know, I, I think this is – it's going to be a tougher challenge for Stenberg because Kinlaw has that agility and athleticism advantage over him. But once Stenberg gets his hands on Kinlaw, I would expect, uh, I would expect the game to be over. I believe this is a uh, Saturday night game on the SEC channel. Uh, so it's a big contest just for SEC and bowl positioning, but it's also a big contest from an NFL prospect point of view. And that's it for the 88th episode of the Draft Analysts presented by the Believe Sports Podcast Network. Do you believe? If you're enjoying the show, please subscribe on any of the major podcast platforms and leave us a rating and a review. And feel free to ask us questions on Twitter that we'd be happy to answer on the show. We'll be back next week to break down what happened in a few of those games we just mentioned. But in the meantime, head over to profootballnetwork.com for all of Tony's in-season work, including a Game of the Week spotlight, Saturday Live blog, and much, much more. On behalf of Tony Pauly, I'm Chris Tripodi. Good night. <laughs>